Hi, my name is uh, Kjetil Stördal. I'm a pediatrician and uh, I'm also the spokesperson for Gjør um, kloke valg, or uh, in English, Choosing Wisely Norway. Uh, and today we have uh, a very famous visitor in the studio, Wendy Levinson, a pioneer and a living legend in Choosing Wisely International. She's based in Toronto, in Canada. But uh, at uh, the moment she is in Oslo uh, for the occasion of the International Roundtable meeting, which we have had uh, two last days. And tomorrow we are actually celebrating our fifth anniversary in the Norwegian campaign here at Welcome, Wendy. It's my pleasure to be here and congratulations on your fifth anniversary. Thank you. You have been uh, running this campaign in Canada for uh, much longer than we have. You started off in 2014, isn't that right? Correct. So you have uh, a lot of stamina when you are running on your 10th year soon. So um, can you tell us briefly about um, what is the key to success for a campaign like Choosing Wisely? I think the, the most important key to success is the underlying commitment and support of the clinicians, the doctors and the nurses and other professionals who contribute to the creation of the lists initially. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. And who then help to disseminate that, communicate it to their members and ultimately help to put it into practice. So I think that is fundamental. And we always see it as the very basis. We're always in our group talking about the core is the clinicians and the societies that they rep that represent them. And I think that's the most important. But I think then we've had the fortunate help of some funding from our government that's allowed us to hire staff and deepen our programs. And I think the other thing is, um, initially it is about creating the recommendations and raising awareness, but it must shift at some point to trying to put them into practice. Right. So um, how has this campaign been perceived by the clinicians? Uh, do you have any kind of feedback from them about uh, how they feel about choosing wisely? So that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, we have done some surveys. Um, most recently, we did a survey of our primary care physicians. And actually, it really surprised me because we asked them how often they use it in their daily practice. And 60% said they used it regularly in their daily practice. Really? And another 20% said they used it rarely, um, which is fine because a lot of specialties it wouldn't be frequent. It might be rarely. So I think in primary care, we think it's had a lot of uptake. Um, another indication about how they see it is that we recently asked the societies to submit proposals for how they could deepen the implementation of the recommendations. And 23 of the societies submitted a proposal, which mm. was really heartening to me, indicating that there's a lot of interest. Mm. So um, I think we're making progress, but we're also still working on the, how do you put it into practice? Right. And it's also a campaign which involves uh, the patient. So the patient is in, uh, in the center of the campaign. Uh, do you have any perception of how uh, the campaign is uh, welcomed uh, in the population of Canada? You know, I think we have more work to do there and maybe we can learn from you. And I want to come back to asking you a question about that. Um, we have a patient advisory and all the things we do, we try to include the patient's voice. So we understand, let me give you an example. We're 
spending some time now talking about the relationship of choosing wisely to climate change. And one of the suggestions and recommendations from our respiratory colleagues is to replace inhalers that are MDI inhalers with dry powder inhalers. Mm. Well, that might be one way that physicians would think about that, but how do patients feel about that? Yeah. And so those kinds of patient-sensitive issues, we really need to engage with the patients. Right. But let, let me ask you a question. Um, one of the things in Canada that has been of concern to us is, you know, reducing antibiotic use in the outpatient area for viral infections or in your specialty, pediatric mm. antibiotics. You guys have done like a remarkable job. How did you do that? So I think that's um, something that has been going on for long time, even a long time before choosing wisely uh, in 2012. Um Sorry, in 2014, uh, it was decided by the government that we need a kind of initiative to reduce antibiotic uh, prescription because we are uh, still increasing without any reason. And uh, it has been a lot of effort from uh, especially a center of antibiotic um, um, therapy, um, mainly run by the general practitioners, and focusing on changing guidelines, um, making feedback systems uh, for prescribers, so they are aligned with the rest of the um, um, prescribers. But also that uh, I think the perception in the population has changed quite a lot. People don't want antibiotics for a sore throat anymore if they don't need it. They understand that this is also something which is changing uh, their own health in a negative way if they don't need it and also because of uh, concerns of uh, antimicrobial resistance which is a big concern as we know so i think this is an example of that once the medical society uh, is changing their attitude it may also reflect be reflected on the population and now we have to convince some parents that in this case your child will need antibiotics because they are quite skeptical <laughs> Well, we have something to learn from you because our family doctors often think it's the patients requesting antibiotics that leads them to prescribing. Mm. And, um, of course, we've tried to create materials to make it easier for physicians to not prescribe. Mm. We use something called a viral prescription, which you can hand out, but it isn't for an antibiotic. Um, But we still have work to do to try and disseminate that. And we're trying to do studies of the high prescribers, the top 10 to 20% of prescribers, and have them give them feedback, kind of like you were doing, but we still have a long way to go. Exactly. And I also think that uh, to use that kind of prescriptions that are on hold, so wait and see, we expect that this uh, otitis is going to disappear anyway. But if it doesn't, you have antibiotic prescription which can be used in case it doesn't resolve as expected. So that's also a way to reduce the the use. One of the things that I think is an issue at our place, and I'd be curious about you too, is that, you know, our clinicians are very overworked, especially post-COVID. We had lots of nurses retire, many even primary care doctors retired. And so we have quite a intense pressure on them. And so one of the things we talk about at Choosing Wisely is how can we make their load lighter? How can mm. we not see it as adding yet another thing they're supposed to think about and do? But how do you make choosing, how can choosing wisely make doing the right thing the easier thing to do? Yeah. 
Right. I, I don't know. Is that the same here? Yeah, actually, we have unpublished uh, res- results, but uh, they show that um, in counties where the rate of prescription per consultation is lower, also the population is visiting the primary care more rarely because they know that uh, this is not necessary yet. So that's a way to show that it, it actually works um, both ways. Mm-hmm. It's reducing the, the visits. Mm. Um, you said something about that um, you have some funding from the government and uh, we know that Choosing Wisely is based on the principle of a bottom-up campaign. Are there any risks with uh, involving with governments uh, in terms of uh, finances? Um, may it change the perception of the Choosing Wisely campaign and what is your experience? So I think that's a really fundamentally important question because um, if physicians or clinicians and patients, either one, perceive choosing wisely as really a cost-cutting maneuver with just a different dressing on it, Mm. um, they, of course, will not trust it. And so when we started the campaign, and still, we are very clear that this is about quality and preventing harm. There may be a side effect that's good for health resources in the system. That could be like cutting the lines, the queues for MRIs, because in Canada, Mm. we have too few MRI machines, and people get it at two in the morning. And we want to make sure those machines are available for the oncology patients that really need it. Mm. Or it could, in some cases, be cutting costs. But we never see that as the primary mission. And I think it does depend on how uh, the payer supports choosing wisely. We don't, for example, take money from insurance companies. Mm. Um, We have a publicly funded system. Our federal government, the national government, has something called Health Canada. And actually, they don't directly fund any health care. It's funded in our provinces and territories. So uh, I think what's happened now is we have gained the trust Mm. in 10 years Mm. of clinicians. They, They really do believe us. We have credibility I think we're held in high regard. And therefore, I think with that trust, we can work with governments a little more closely. There mm-hmm. are some things that really are better handled by a maybe a top-down or a policy approach. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. I think uh, we have way too many, we had way too many vitamin D levels ordered because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of lay press that vitamin D is, you should have it measured. And, um, it's always low, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, you know, we we know that that is needed. So instead of every doctor kind of remembering they shouldn't do it, uh, we have worked with some provinces to change what they'll pay for. And if a vitamin D is ordered, it has to have why you're ordering it and meet certain criteria or else it's not done. So that we would not have done at the beginning of our campaign. Mm. But now that we have more trust and the societies themselves recommend not ordering vitamin D, it's not, you know, then we're able to do those kinds of things. Now, I don't think we should do them a lot, um, but I'll give you one other example. Um, In Ontario, one of the, the 13 provinces and territories, we had a rule that was written into law that every single specimen that was taken by an orthopedic surgeon out of a hip or knee Mm -hmm. tissue needed to be sent to pathology. But our pathologists are kind of going crazy with all the tissue Mm. that they have to analyze. And so we helped to get the law changed. Yeah. So these are some examples. Yeah. 
So you're talking about uh, what we call system drivers for overuse that you can also address, but that requires a bit more of uh, maturation, isn't it? I think so. I mean, we really didn't start there. Um, but as we've matured, we have seen these opportunities to work at a system level. So I'll give you one more example. Uh, we have a big emphasis on decreasing the use of red blood cells. And in fact, during the beginning of COVID, we launched that campaign in 2020 because um, we had a decrease in the blood supply. Mm. So one of the incentives we could provide for hospitals was that they get accredited by mm. Accreditation Canada, who reviews hospital performance, and they could get sort of extra points in their accreditation by decreasing their inappropriate blood use. Mm -hmm. So again, these are the system drivers, facilitators, or barriers. And I think as we've matured, we are able to do that. Mm -hmm. In an article reflecting on choosing wisely past and present, you express some wise thoughts about the early phase of a campaign like Choosing Wisely and the next stage, which you call a maturation of the campaign. And in Norway, I guess that we are still in the preschool at five years. So um, do you have any uh, advices? Uh, what are the key features uh, to make us move to the next stage of a campaign like Choosing Wisely? So I think the, the key turning point is once you have a fair number of recommendations like you already do, it's trying to really see some targets where you can put it into action. And you can't do everything because that would be too demanding, but you you could pick something where you think there's really an opportunity to, we sometimes say in English, move the needle, mm. show that we've made a difference. Mm. And, you know, one of the things we've, we've done th three things really. We um, designate hospitals choosing wisely hospitals if they do a certain number of quality improvement choosing wisely projects right. and submit data to us in fact if they teach other hospitals how to do it we give them a higher level designation mm. we've also done some broader canada-wide efforts again with the hospitals one on the blood that i mentioned before and a second on decreasing the use of unnecessary laboratory testing mm. and in these cases we have uh, in one case, 125 hospitals, because we just started not that long ago. The blood program has over, you know, almost 250 hospitals, accounting for 75% of the blood used in Canada. Mm. And they're all auditing their blood use against criteria and trying to do quality improvement. So I think picking something mm -hmm. that is important, considered important, right. and trying to work together to make change is an important part of maturation. Mm. Now that doesn't happen overnight. And uh, I think so you have to kind of pace yourself and it does take resources to do some of this work. It does. In Norway, we have, uh, I think at last count, 105 recommendations and you have more than 500. So what you say is that uh, we should not take all the 105 in uh, one big gap and uh, try to solve every problem, but pick something which is important and, and doable, right? Yes, and in fact, the reason we picked blood as our first one is at six of our societies actually had a blood recommendation. So hematology, critical care, surgery. So there was quite a nice theme across multiple major societies. And so that was another reason that we picked it as a target. Mm. 
So list of recommendations, they are important like in the early phases of a campaign because we need to identify what are the main objectives that we should work on. But uh, then the next stage will be to try to focus on uh, a few of those to, to make things change. Yes, and I think another couple of things to keep in mind are um, being interdisciplinary. I think it's fair to say we started with physicians. We're still pretty physician-centric, but... Um, you know, we really see the opportunity. I always say uh, overuse is a team sport. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to really work more closely with our pharmacy and nursing colleagues mm. on trying to decrease overuse. In fact, in antibiotic use, 10% of antibiotics in the outpatient setting, which is the majority of antibiotics, are prescribed by dentists. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, we've tried to deepen our approach in an interdisciplinary way. I guess also nurses has an important role in uh, uh, avoiding uh, unnecessary prescription of antibiotics, right? Very important. And and it varies on your setting, who prescribes, but we think nurses are a key part of our program. And one thing I would also want to point out is a highlight of our program that we share with you is uh, engaging students. Mm. So we really know from the literature that medical students learn how to practice early in their career. They learn their practice patterns and they're quite set. And as you go on in your career, you typically use the same practice patterns and they're hard to change. Mm. So we've been trying hard through our medical students to get get it right at the beginning, knowing that they are the future. And of course, Norway has done a similar thing with your students. We have, but I think we still have a long way to go at the transition from being a student to being a young doctor, a practitioner, because that's when you learn, learn the, the wrong habits, because you are so busy and you are uh, so um, influenced by supervisors that may have other approaches. So I think that's also a very important uh, time to uh, try to um, intervene. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think in the end, um, you know, choosing wisely, it's a culture change. Mm. You know, I don't know about you, when I trained I learned being thorough and leaving no stone unturned was kind of the right way to be a good doctor. Mm. And we're trying to change a whole approach, really. And so it needs multiple strategies and it needs time. Mm. And I think it patience is pretty key to this. Um, and, you know, persisting over time because each piece builds on itself. And we've gained more credibility over time in Canada And that credibility allows us to take on more challenging things. And so I think it is persistence and working with policymakers because we share the same goal. Mm. You know, we, one decision maker said to me once what he really liked about choosing wisely is he was sitting at the same side of the table as, as patients, physicians, and other clinicians, hospital administrators, we're all pulling in the same direction Mm. to make the most of the healthcare resources we have to optimize the quality of care for our patients. And Mm. so, you know, if we can work collaboratively with that shared goal and we give it time, I think we will make big changes in our healthcare systems. Right. Which I think moves us to the last point, uh, which I would like to discuss with you, because time is really a constraint in the healthcare system. And uh, I know that many colleagues, they think that, uh, well, choosing wisely is a good idea, but we don't have time. We don't have time for these conversations that are recommended. We don't have time to uh, talk with patients in the way that we should. 
What do you think about that? Is time pressure a strong driver or are we wrong? <laughs> well, I think it is a strong driver. Um, you know, I think we we as a campaign choosing wisely Norway and Canada, we need to make it easier for clinicians. We need to give them tools. So when patients think they need an MRI, if we can give them materials from a credible source, in this case, choosing wisely, that explains to them why that's maybe not helpful. Mm. Um that can supplement the conversation or make the conversation easier. And, you know, the same thing with the viral prescriptions. I, I think we have to be very mindful that clinicians are under a lot of time constraint. Mm. And so it's, again, making it the right thing, the easy thing to do. And, um, and that's part of our job mm. to not add it on, but even find ways to make it decrease the workload on doctors. And perhaps the patients will not seek next time for a viral infection if something new is uh, happening in the conversation with the doctor at the first time. Right. So thank you, Wendy, for uh, visiting us in Norway. And thank you for your thoughts about choosing wisely. My pleasure. And again, congratulations on five years with five more ahead. Thank you. <laughs>